0: A pleasant Good Evening, Mets fans, and welcome to episode three of the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. My name is Sam Lebowitz, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Jack Hendon. Jack, how
1: are you doing on this fine Sunday evening? Very fine Sunday evening. Uh, Jacob deGrom pitched. Why I'm, Jacob I'm doing great. Jake, he did pitch today, and he pitched in the daytime, and as we know, Jacob deGrom
0: is a very good pitcher when the sun is shining, and well, the Phillies were no match. Um, today was a fourteen to one win, and yesterday a five to one win. And honestly, generally, an okay week for the Mets as they went. Uh, was it four and three, Jack? I believe it was four and three.
1: Uh yeah, four and three. They split the Orioles. They uh, lost Friday and they lost Monday, and everything else. a yeah. wins.
0: In the Mets are 4-3, and three, and some good wins this week, including a walk-off in a makeup game against the Yankees on Thursday. Pete Alonso had four home runs this week, including two today, including the walk-off on Thursday. Let's talk a little bit about today's game just before we get into things. Jacob deGrom struck out 12 Phillies, second time he's struck out 12 in a game this year, but the most perhaps notable aspect of his start was that he had 35 Swings and misses, and Jack, that is the most swings and misses in a Major League Baseball game since Royals lefty Danny Duffy in 2016. And the difference between this and his last start, that loss against the Marlins on Monday, is really he was just way more consistent, deeper into the start, right?
1: Yeah, way better. Uh His release point was one thing that I think I looked at, a, like a stat cast map, that I think— Matt Brownstein tweeted uh earlier today that basically it basically charts uh on like a you know like a a grid where uh the ball first leaves deGrom's hand. Each pitch basically came from the exact same spot in his hand, which is like a master class in tunneling pitches. Uh so you would no idea if, you know. It was going to come in a certain way, like a slider, a fastball. Like, and with the, the fact that he hit triple digits like a number of times, too, it, it was pretty much unhittable uh, that whole game. 12 strikeouts. I'm, he's now the only pitcher aside Trevor, uh, Trevor Bauer, who has more than uh, 12, 12 or more strikeouts uh, in more than one game this year. So it's pretty yeah pretty cool. I'm pretty happy yeah. he's ours.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty glad that he's going to be here for a few more years, too, that we locked him up because he's the best pitcher on the planet right now. <laughs> he's just – it seems like every time he's out there, it's so, so good. It's it's Jacob deGrom, it's so fun to watch him pitch, and I feel like we're spoiled at this point that honestly watching him, like I think I've seen better starts from him, and yet you look at the line, and it's seven innings, three hits. He gave up a solo homer to Andrew Knapp for the only run. Andrew freaking nap. I don't know how that happens uh and 12 strikeouts and watching him I'm like yeah he looks really great today but I, I've seen him better
1: yeah that's how I feel about it too it's like I'll, I'll watch him like strike a guy out um you know on a slider down on a way and it's like you know I've seen like that, that I've seen better sliders before you know even though it's a pitch that I don't think any other pitcher can throw already. I mean, the Cy Young race is kind of, it's a shame this isn't a full season because DeGrom, as we know, because he's done it twice, would hold this kind of value up through a whole season. Um, the race is, I don't even know if the race is in his favor right now. Um, just because you Dar- is, yeah.
0: U Darvish has been really, really good. And his ERA is about a fifth of a run lower right now. It's sitting at like a 1.44 for the Cubs. Yeah. Where- DeGrom is, I think, at 1.68 or 6.9. Yeah. Um, speaking of ERA, actually, because this is actually quite fascinating, with the the one run over seven today, DeGrom lowers his career ERA to 2.58. And, folks, that's second in Mets history. Uh, obviously, minimum a certain amount of innings. I think the, the number is minimum 1,100 innings for this particular stat. Uh, and the only ERA better than him is Tom Seavers, who is just... 0.01 runs better. Seaver at 2.57. DeGrom at 2.58. And let's talk about Tom Seaver because, unfortunately, uh, the Mets legend, the best player in franchise history, Tom's the franchise, passed away at the age of 75 on Wednesday night. Um, or that's when we got the news. It was Wednesday night. Um, and for our listeners, we're going to be honest. We're both young. We never got a chance to watch Tom Seaver Pitch, uh, in fact, the only um, chances that we've ever had to actually watch and pitch is in in replays and in highlights and in, in video. Um, so we can't grasp the magnitude of the kind of pitcher that Tom Seaver was, other than by kind of comparing him to what we do know and and watching and looking at the stats and, and seeing what we can see. But one thing we can grasp is the value that he had to this franchise. He legitimized the franchise in a way that no player ever would or could because the team was a laughing stock through the first five years. And he came in in 67, um, won, won the Rookie of the Year. And he turned this team around. And that was the turning point. His in- introduction to the franchise, his joining the team was when this organization Turned from laughing stock to okay, there's a future here. Right, Jack?
1: Yeah. Uh well I don't really have a testimony of my own, obviously. Um, I don't really have a story either from my dad that I could share with people. Obviously he grew up uh with everyone on the block, everyone who wasn't Met fan and under, you know, eighteen wanting to be like Seaver, just the the guy was such a competitor. Um and, he gave, I mean, he really gave that team and gave that franchise a competitive label that they otherwise had never had or even, you know, sniffed. Uh, just the number that speaks out, you know, that stands out to me is what he did um, that last month of the 69 season. I mean, I know obviously the team put a lot together to come back from 10 games behind the Cubs, but, I mean, I didn't realize just how much of a role that Seaver played Uh, you know, he threw 87 innings in that month, and that's across 10 starts. I mean, he averaged nearly nine innings per start. That's, like, unprecedented nowadays. You'd never see that. You'd never see a pitcher, like, that capable of going deep into games over that kind of stretch. And he won nine of these games, eight complete games, three shutouts. 12 earned runs which i mean that totals a 124 era it was like bob gibson-esque uh there's no other way to explain it i mean the the one story that i remembered hearing from you know just loose you know moments in the booth hearing you know howie talk about Seaver. You know the whole, the the sort of thing that spoke to his spirit as a competitor was in that fourth game of the World Series against the Orioles, where this was a game, mind you, that he pitched ten innings. Uh, he went the full ten innings. The Mets won this game in the bottom of the tenth on a walk off, and it basically it basically sealed the thing against a very good Orioles team, up two to one. They made it a three one lead. Um, you know they're up one nothing heading into the ninth, and Seaver gives up a run. Uh, but he comes right back into the dugout and you know tells everyone, that's that's it. You know, don't worry, guys. They're not getting any more. That's the only one they're getting. And he like followed through on that. Like it was such a. I mean, Seaver would just be that guy who would give up a run and just you know turn the lights back on, come out and you know shove like like nothing had happened. Um, he was just like the ultimate competitor. Um, that's kind of all that that's coming to my mind right now. I mean, he was just so clutch for them and he really made everyone around him better. And I think without him, the, the trajectory of the franchise would have been a lot different.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating when, uh, we do have an opportunity to watch kind of the consensus, best pitcher in the game right now, every fifth day. And DeGrom was asked after the game today, uh, what he thought of um, Tom Seaver and any comparisons that could be drawn between the two of them. And Jake kind of hung his head and said he had never met him, but he wished he could pick his brain. And he doesn't see the comparison. He doesn't see himself as anywhere near Tom Seaver's level of importance to this franchise as a pitcher or, or level of ability. Because And the, the one stat he cited was that complete game stat, is that he's never going to touch that. Mm. Uh, obviously, it's a different sport now in terms of length, but, um, even a pitcher like DeGrom, who had never met Seaver and wasn't born until after Seaver's career ended, I think it's a testament to the type of pitcher and the type of respect that, that he commands for this, this organization as a, as a man and as a player that someone as amazing as DeGrom, perhaps the best and most consistent starting pitcher this organization has had since Seaver. There's a legitimate argument there. Um, even with all the amazing pitchers the Mets have had over the years, uh, I think it's just a testament to to who Tom was and he will be dearly missed. And it's a a shame. It's a damn shame that this organization didn't do more to honor him during his lifetime and that he won't be able to see um, the statue that uh, they announced that they would uh, build for him. Also, I I do want, I think while we're on this subject, it's important for us to just mention uh, the passing of another Hall of Famer today, Lou Brock, uh, Cardinals legend and the man who uh, was the stolen base king in Major League Baseball until Ricky Henderson took over. Uh, Brock passed away at the age of 81 today. And it's almost eerie because Seaver was the pitcher that Lou Brock faced the most in his Hall of Fame career, and Brock was the batter that Seaver faced the most during his career. So those two um, passing away five days apart will – I guess, always be at least somewhat connected and uh, our hearts go out to the Brock family.
1: We'll go right back to facing each other up there, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Same as it ever was. Absolutely.
0: So now that we've uh, talked about the hard stuff, let's talk about the current team and everything that's been going on with this current team. And well, folks, it looks just a little bit different than it did last time we spoke to you as last Monday, six days ago was the trading deadline and the Mets didn't look like they were going to make any moves, but they wound up making not one, not two, but three individual trades right at the 4 p.m. Deadline.
1: Jack, do you want to tell us about them? Yeah. um, Well, these all came after four o'clock. The news broke after four. So I was just like, ecstatic at like 405 I was like we made it we, there's nothing It's it, that's it um and then you know the Robinson Chirinos uh deal breaks first the Mets traded a player to be named later to the Texas Rangers for Chirinos um I think the
0: first news that trickled in was that the Mets had traded Kevin Smith to the Orioles and we didn't know who it was for Kevin Smith is on the Mets 60 man player pool. He's a left handed pitcher. He's fairly close to uh, major league level, kind of a fifth starter type. And I think it was John Heyman tweeted that the Mets had traded Kevin Smith to Baltimore. And then later on, we were wondering who the return was. It said that the, someone said that the Mets got a catcher. And so everyone was saying, oh, they got one of the Orioles' catchers. Pedro said Reno or Chancisco. And then yeah. it turns out, no, it's a completely different trade with a different team.
1: Was it was Smith that went first? I mean, the other thing that's I mean, yeah, it's so jarring to me that we found out about one trade, wondered who we were giving up or getting back, and then we find out there's a second trade. It's it's a very uh, it it checks out. It's pretty Mets. Um, Smith had been a, an organizational pitcher of the year last year, if I'm not mistaken, either last year or the year before. He's a pretty you know, s- s- yeah, last year, slow throwing lefty, good breaking stuff. Ceiling is probably four or five starter, which, you know, in these times with this rotation, it's a gamble that you make. I'm not really losing sleep over it. I think Brody has made worse deals. Um, But, you know, the return also was pretty good. Basically, what we found out was that they got a reliever from Baltimore. They got their closer, uh, or I guess their their, their incumbent closer because they had traded Michael Gibbons earlier in the week. So Miguel Castro, who we acquired, had been their closer. Castro comes to the Mets. He's basically going to serve as a seventh-eighth inning guy. They're still kind of rolling by committee. I guess Diaz is their closer, but also if Diaz struggles, Castro is definitely someone who they could ask to, to pitch the ninth inning. Uh, and then just when you think the dust is settled, uh, they, they, they make the trade that just kind of it makes you scratch your head. It makes you kind of happy, but it also just like befuddles and frustrates because it's just the Mets bringing back another dude who wasn't particularly good, even if he played for a team that was very exciting last year, and that's Todd Frazier of Toms River, New Jersey, the third baseman. Uh, His OPS with the Rangers had been slipping. He has a player option for next year. I think he's like 33 now. Uh, I don't really know what role he serves with, like, what, like three guys who are capable of playing third base right now? It, 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 uh, I mean, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, why don't we, we can break down each one individually. We can start with Frazier, and then we can move to Torinos, and then Castro if you want. It doesn't really matter the order, but um, Frazier's a confusing one for me. I was very confused uh, at the, at the nature of that trade. I guess the timing was right. You know, J.D. Davis had been... On the shelf for a couple days, he got pegged on the hip by a roldus as Chapman uh, by a fastball, which is probably the last pitcher you want to get pegged by a fastball. Um, so he had been, you know, nursing that for a couple days. And, and the Mets were kind of doing third baseman by committee at that point. Guillorme was playing third. Menez was playing a little third. Um, and they traded for Frazier and were like, OK, maybe J.D. Davis is actually hurt. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they're going to put him on the I.L. Turns out he's not. In fact, Davis hit a very big game-tying home run off Chapman on Thursday in the makeup game that the Mets wound up winning in extras. Um, So it's just kind of confusing. Frazier just really kind of screams as the guy that the Mets acquired that they probably didn't need to necessarily acquire and is just going to play way too much for his skill level at this point. Yeah.
1: It was it was really like a let's just light a fire under their ass trade. I mean, we should we should make clear Smith is the only player that we know who's been traded. There are three two to three players to be named later. Two for sure going to Texas, and then Baltimore is either getting a player to be named or cash considerations. It's I mean, this was not it's not, you know, Matt Allen. It's not Ronnie Mauricio, but, you know, they saw some good guys that aren't in the player pool right now. I mean, I I would hate to find out in a few months that it's Josh Wolfe or Shervian Newton or Junior Santos or, you know, someone on the fringes who uh, you know, is who's a much higher trajectory right now that that gets dealt. I mean, Fraser just seemed very excessive. It seemed kind of like a Honestly, just you know, a move to get players excited. Although, I mean, I don't know if I have to pick one that I really like, it's probably the Chirinos deal because it's like a it's basically a breather for the Mets because they really didn't have a backup catcher save for Ali Sanchez, who was kind of out of his element as a hitter. Uh, but Chirinos's you know, weighted runs created was negative when we acquired him, he was batting 119. He's here for his defense. Uh, he's been hitting a little bit this weekend, but, I mean, it's, it's kind of... I mean, that's a thing that's going to be a problem that the Mets are going to need to confront when Tomas Nito comes off the injured list. Or I guess he's not on the injured list anymore, but once he's ready to play again. Because they took him off the COVID IL.
0: Yeah, he, Tomas is, is back in the player pool. He's off the COVID IL, um, meaning or he's resumed baseball activity, uh, which I, I assume that means he's been cleared of COVID. Um, the team never confirmed that he had COVID, but he confirmed it himself on his Instagram page. Um, Chirinos is a serviceable backup catcher option at this point in his career. There's still power in the bat. He didn't hit at all for Texas this year. Uh, I think he had, when the Mets got him, he had five hits and 12 strikeouts on the season so far. Um, but it, it, the defense is is fine. It's not great. Behind the plate at this point, it's definitely not as good as it was a couple years ago when he was probably in the top half of of catchers in the league. Now he's uh, closer to middle of the pack, maybe a little under, uh, under the average. But, I mean, just watching him this week, there's a noticeable difference. Again, as we've talked about with every catcher that the Mets have rostered this year, not named Wilson Ramos, there's a very noticeable difference in the defense behind the plate when he's playing versus when Ramos is playing, it's not—it's not even a question. Ramos has been—I I can't even describe how terrible he is. He's been pretty he's bad on the plate.
1: It's been—I really don't think there's a
0: worst. I don't think there's the worst catcher in baseball right now, defensively at least. And I mean, we can talk about the offense too. He hit a home run to anybody else who struck out four times. It's—it's it's ugly, and it—it it creates a—a a very interesting decision when Nito is ready to come off the COVID IL, if he's even going to come off of. The the, uh, when he's ready to come back to the team, if he's even going to be recalled at all, they could keep him in the alternate site. He's out of options. Um, right. They could just roll with Ramos and Chirinos from here on out. Or if they want to bring Nito back, either you roster three catchers, or why don't you just cut Wilson Ramos? Each your yeah. losses. It's not, it's not like you'd owe him uh, all that much money because it's still prorated, and it's still yeah. only for a month, if that.
1: Um, it's an interesting question. It would have to be, I mean, it would have to just be like a protect your investment pride thing. But even then, I think the Mets are finally kind of, you know, because I think they really do want to make the playoffs and they want to take this last, you know, month of baseball seriously. We have kind of seen them make moves that for me, at least, I mean, are a bit of a pleasant surprise. Uh, They gave up on the Robert Kesselman experiment. He's going back to the bullpen with Castro. Uh, so that bullpen is a lot stronger now than it was at the beginning of last week. Um, David Peterson is fully in the rotation. That's not changing. They put him in the bullpen for one game in Baltimore. He did like three solid. Was it, it was three or four solid shutout innings of relief. Yeah, I mean, he looked great. He looked great. Lugo has looked great in the rotation. And they're also, I mean, they're also playing Andre Jimenez more short now. They're sitting Ahmed Rosario. So I, I, like for me, at least with the, the, the flow of decisions they've been making, I wouldn't actually be that surprised if they moved on from Ramos. Because ultimately Nito is, even last year's Nito, who hit in the 180s, 190s, would probably make for a better starter than this year's Ramos, I think, solely on defense. But, the, you know, the plus side is Nito's still hitting. He's hitting above 300 right now. I mean, it's a smallish sample, but you got to play the hot hand if you, if you want to get back over 500 and make this happen. I mean, they've definitely right, we seen don't the know- construction of the roster.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't really know what it's going to be like for Tomas coming back from COVID because we don't know uh, really, how that's going to affect anybody? Generally, I mean, anyone can come back. come back strong, they can come back a significantly different player. We really don't know the nature of this disease in terms of how it affects baseball players yet. Um, however, one thing I would assume probably doesn't change is Tomas's defense when he comes back, and he's a very, very good defensive catcher. He's a probably within the top. 10 or so defensive catchers in the game maybe top 15 he's a good framer he's got a very strong arm he's a good blocker he's athletic behind the plate mm-hmm. um and i do think that bat was starting to come around this year it was a small sample size but i like the guy personally and mm-hmm. i i would prefer them to go and sign jt realmuto in the offseason but i guess with if his defense is as good as i've been saying it is it wouldn't be the end of the world if he's the starting catcher heading into next year as long as they make moves elsewhere um, before we touch on the construction of the roster, we should just touch on Castro because we really haven't, really haven't actually like, talked yeah. about him as a pitcher. He's a, a sinker-slider guy, top percentile in, in velocity on the, on the sinker. Um, it's a wipeout slider. So he's, really, he's going to pump 97-98 with side run, and he's just going to throw these wipeout breaking balls. The control is not to the level you want it, and he tends to give up some hard contact. But he's striking more guys out this year, and there's team control there. He's going to be a met through 2023, I believe. Yeah. And um, people, you know, when they traded for him, are saying, oh, he's Edwin Diaz light because of the hard contact, but he also strikes out a lot of guys. I think it's more akin to Jerry's familiar, to be honest, because uh, just in terms of the, the pitch uh, repertoire with the sinker slider and the the velocity and, and all that stuff, but I don't know about you, Jack, but I've actually kind of liked what I've seen from him in his first couple outings as a
1: Yeah, the stuff looks really good. I mean, it, he's gonna need to iron out the control with the slider a little bit. Uh, I mean, right now he's only pitched three innings. Um, you know, two earned runs, but I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit tough getting acclimated. I'd say. Uh, I just, I, I, I really just love watching him pitch. Just he's like six foot seven, and he's like. Barely over 200 pounds. It's like watching Wilt from uh, Foster's Imaginary Friends on the yeah. Hill. He's just like this really, really lanky guy who throws like out of his body. I mean, I think the hard contact thing, you're going to need to work that out. But if they can, you know, if they can that get happens. results out of Diaz, it's not that bad a deal.
0: I mean, Edwin Diaz just refuses to give up contact
1: this year. So.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Edwin Diaz and, and Miguel Castro are in that bullpen. And someone who's not in that bullpen is Seth Lugo. Let's I'll try to evaluate. We're now four, four starts in. So Lugo, who says he's now fully stretched out. He threw five innings um, last night, Saturday night. Uh, he threw over 80 pitches in that outing. I don't have the exact number up right now, but he's looked good. He's looked very good. He hasn't given up more than, uh, I don't think he's, has he given up two runs in a start yet? I don't think he has.
1: I don't think he has either. I'm looking at his game logs right now. They're loading. I mean, each start has gotten better than the one before it. Uh, He's gone. He's thrown. He's made three starts. He went three innings against Miami. No one even reached base. Three and two thirds with one run against the Yankees. uh, And then five innings last night against Philly. Eight strikeouts. So that's, I mean, that's 20 strikeouts in just over 11 innings. Uh, so that's, you couldn't really ask for more if he stretches out. I mean, I would imagine at some point because he's a starter, like innings will catch up to you and hitters will figure things out. I don't think he's going to be like a, you know, like a sub two fifty ERA pitcher, uh, per se, but he's someone who, I mean, if you go into next year and Seth Lugo is like your, your four or five starter, you're suddenly in. Probably the same shape you were in coming into this year before Syndergaard got hurt, Um, which isn't last year's rotation. But it's it it does stand to reason that, you know, you're making pretty important improvements. Uh, I mean, he's looked really, really good.
0: He has looked good. and, And I was as critical as anyone about this decision to put him in the rotation. But he has looked really good. You know, my original thought was, is it worth it if he's only going to be able to throw three, four uh, innings in an outing? Because if he's only going to go three or four innings, I would personally rather him be able to throw two high leverage innings versus three or four lower leverage innings at the start of a game. But if he's going to be able to go five, six, maybe even seven innings, depending on pitch count, uh, I think it, it could possibly be worth it. Uh It really depends on the bullpen because I still really like having a guy that I know throws strikes and I know that I can really rely on in the bullpen and there's really just not a guy out there right now. Edwin's look great for the most part with a couple, you know, hit or miss outings in there. Um, You know, I just – I go back and forth about this. I go back and forth about it because there's really no guy that I feel like we can – trust as much as we trusted Lugo. Yeah.
1: Wilson uh, is kind of, Wilson has games where he looks lights out. It's, it's really just about figuring out location. Um, I mean, hopefully Castro starts to really like get his feet wet and, and put something together. He's kind of the guy that is going to be put in like the broad, the Brad Brock role from last year. Brad Brock's been okay. Uh, and And Jared Hughes has been okay, but they're kind of like, they're really milking the innings out of out of Hughes and Brock, and I don't know how sustainable that really is. I mean, Friday was just a disaster for Jared Hughes. I felt bad watching it because he's just—I mean, he's just doing what he can, but he pitched like was it thirty gate thirty pitches the game before, and then they had him come out and throw like thirty-eight pitches against 30 Philly, and he threw
0: forty-one in the loss to Philly on Friday night. He's not a 40 pitch guy, and they had him throw 40 pitches. And he threw 30, 34 pitches in the Yankee series, and then the next day they had him pitch again. And he got he, he that was the game that they blew that up, uh, the five run lead in the ninth inning and or seventh inning. That was a doubleheader game. It's just mm-hmm. some of the usage is starting to, to get to Hughes because he was really good for for a bit here, um, but I don't know how you know much I trust him anymore because it seems like he's just his arm is going to fall off at some point. Another question that this team is seems to be starting to address is the shortstop question. Andres Jimenez started at shortstop three games in a row uh, after Ahmed Rosario actually had a three for four game against the Yankees on Thursday, and Jimenez started at shortstop Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and has looked good. I still don't see a ton in the bat to be optimistic about. He he hits singles. And that's really all he's hitting right now. Yeah. There's been no power. I know he hit the home run in Baltimore earlier this week, but, you know, uh, a broken clock is right twice a day. Like, that's just yeah. – I don't see power there. I love the defensive tools, and the I love the speed. He's an aggressive base
1: runner, yeah. but I just don't
0: well, – I don't know if The thing is that
1: the homer is like – Well, here, let me, let me let you finish. Sorry.
0: Well, I was just going to say that. I mean, Luis Guillorme is hitting the tar out of the baseball. Every time he plays, he had a pinch-deep double today. It seemed like he was starting to work into a more consistent starting role, and then Luis Rojas just seemed to forget he existed for a few days. And I don't know if there's a point in rostering him uh, or in rostering Jimenez instead of Guillorme. I don't know if, if Guillorme doesn't do Jimenez's job a little better right now. I know he's not as fast, but certainly is as good a defensive shortstop as Andres, and he's been hitting
1: really has. The thing about Jimenez is the the actual like fundamental approach he's taking has been like encouraging. Like the home run came on an opposite field hit and I'm not someone who like tries to emphasize go the other way but he kind of has he kind of came up and was a little bit pull happy. He was a little pull happy in spring training too. Um and he's hitting good pitches. I mean, this is around the time where if Jimenez were easy to expose as just like a lucky hitter. He would have been exposed and exploited by Philly pitchers, by opposing pitchers. And, you know, there was a point right before uh, the COVID stuff wiped out a weekend where he was starting to like, he was really starting to struggle. His OPS was like in the low six hundreds and it looked like he'd finally been figured out, but he's come back and actually like put stuff together. I think it's important for his development that you not jostle him between an alternate site and the majors. And I think he's like, I think with the way the rest of the offense is going to, it's not, I personally don't think it's as big an issue if he's just a singles hitter because he still gives you defense. And he also still, at least for the moment, is someone that pitchers are having a harder time getting out. Even if Guillorme is better, I think that it's it's kind of it's almost a good problem to have because you have like another Andre Jimenez waiting in reserve anyway. But it's one that you're not stunting in terms of development.
0: Yeah, I mean it is a difficult question because I think if there was a triple A team that you could send him to and get reps at, then yeah, you just do it and you roster Guillorme as your backup infielder. But there's not. And so it's it's a matter of is he if you do send him to the alternate site is he going to get the same level of uh, reps and I I, just, I don't really think he would be I mean having guys at the alternate site like Brett Beatty or a Ronnie Mauricio is important to their development because they're just not sitting out right. but Jimenez has gotten his feet wet here so while those kind of reps are important for the guys who haven't played in the upper minors and majors yet it's it, it 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 does an interesting thing. I feel like with Jimenez's development, because I don't think the bat is ready. Yeah. Quite frankly, I just don't. I think there's more to the bat. I think it could use another, maybe another full season in the minors. Yeah. I think the other tools are are here. I think the other tools are absolutely here. But you know, he's hitting it 280, 290 right now. But it's just a very empty 280, 290. It's not super exceedingly helpful and it's I guess it's, it's better than what Ahmed has given us I mean Ahmed's yeah, been taking true. some he's been taking some better quality at bats it's been a very rough start to his season the, the timing of Andres playing three days in a row was weird to me because Ahmed had a really good game against the Yankees he was three for four yeah. he was starting to walk I think he's now about three walks he walked today in a pinch hit roll yeah. or in a late defensive replacement it was role like
1: a four pitch walk too
0: I think, that you know, if if, Ahmed Rosario is still the uber-talented
1: kid that he's always been, and I'm not willing to give up on him just because of a fake season, because of a short, weird season. They are really trying to just, like, earn that second spot in the division, because they're not catching the Braves. And catching, I mean, catching the Phillies, too. It's like, we say, we think it's going to be easy now, because, you know, we took a game 14-1 to and won a game on Saturday night. But, you know, we have Zach Wheeler tomorrow. It's not like, you know. We could easily drop this last game and, you know, just go back to being three and a half or two and a half behind Philly, which, I mean, really don't have that much time left either. It's, and you don't have any more games against, like, the Marlins. It's not, you know, it's, it's going to be tough. Wheeler kind of, like, whipped our asses last time. He gave seven innings, two runs. He beat us. And then we pitched Porcello against him, too, that night. Uh, yeah. It's going to be Peterson tomorrow, which will be nice. But I don't, Peterson hasn't gone seven innings in a start yet. Wheeler averages nearly seven every start. I mean, he's right now, he's honestly like, he's, what is he, like sixth or seventh in ERA? It's sitting
0: at 2.20. He's had a, it, it's a, been a good start for Zach. Um, the run prevention is there, even if the uh, strikeouts really aren't there. He's only got 29 strikeouts in 45 innings, which is far below his career numbers but he's commanding the baseball. Uh, he's only got nine walks this year. Um, you know, he, I mean, he's, he's been really good for the Phillies, and I assume he's going to be really good tomorrow again because uh, why would the Mets beat someone that they, they dissed as badly as they dissed Wheeler? It's not going to work out for them. Yeah, they could be coming out of this series in a split. Listen, this is not a great Phillies team. They're not that good. The, the entire NL East is not that good. The Braves are, are about as legit a team as you'll find in this division, but pretty much they have holes too, and then everyone beneath them
1: yeah. is
0: very shaky, including the Mets. And I have not been convinced by this Phillies team that they can really, I mean, sure, it's only 18, 17, 18 games after this series the rest of the way, but I'm not convinced that this is a very good team.
1: I don't think even, so either. They can't get out of their own way.
0: They're they're a little banged up now. They got Jay Bruce and Roman Quinn on the shelf, so they're kind of having to uh, go into the the outfield depth. They brought up Kyle Garlick today.
1: Um, Just, you know... They played a bad game today, too. I mean, I'm you know, listen, we're Mets fans. We're not, you know... they, They played a really... They had these moments where, like, they all just look like... They look like the Mets from, like, three years ago. Like, that was a... That was a very, like, 2017 Mets performance they turned in with the way the defense struggled, and they weren't supporting Aaron Nola, who's an incredibly talented pitcher. I mean, I think a lot of it got kind of exacerbated by the fact that Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonzo are, like, they're just back. Like, at least for McNeil, we can say he's really back. I think Alonzo is still swinging first pitch a lot. He's still like getting very antsy, but he's hit he's he's doing things to baseballs again that are kind of like you know, like they they should make other baseballs cower in fear. It's really encouraging on that side, so I, I mean, the Phillies need to continue with that nine out of ten that they brought into city field at the beginning of this weekend because I mean, the Mets, I think offensively. Regardless of what they wind up doing at shortstop, I think that there is – I don't know if it was bringing Todd Frazier in or what, but there's a, there's a giant there that's waiting to be awoken. I mean, Jeff McNeil especially.
0: I mean, they're turning the corner. I, I definitely feel more confidence in the team's offense with McNeil slugging more than he had been. I mean, when, he, when, the, when the season first started, he wasn't hitting for any power. He was getting his base hits. This was before he had the knee injury when he yeah. crashed into that wall and then was, should, probably should have been put on the injured list but wasn't and played through it and then sat a little bit played through it more. Now I think he's back. Yeah. He is first home run here today. Took him over 100 at-bats to get it. He's been driving doubles. He's been hitting doubles like it's nobody's business in the past week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then look at Pete Alonso and this team goes when Pete goes because when you have a guy in the middle of that lineup who can hit a ball 450 feet on any given pitch – it is scary for the opposing yeah. pitchers. And he hit four home runs this week, two, including two today. The first one he hit off Nola, uh, that ball had a family.
1: Man, yeah, that, he off the second
0: deck. He destroyed that. He also had the walk-off home run against the Yankees. He had a ball off John Means earlier in the week in Baltimore, which that ball was in the bay. In the, in the, it was in the second
1: ball. deck, yeah. It was, it was ridiculous. That was like, I think someone... I don't know where they find these stats, but SNY, I guess, found out that that was like the fourth or fifth ball to ever land in the left field second deck in the history of Camden Yards. I don't know how that's possible. Maybe it's just because like to hit a ball up there, you have to like get it right inside the foul pole. But I mean, he's even his louts are out. I mean, earlier this week, he hit a change up. I think it was against the Marlins. He hit a change up that almost bounced in front of the plate. And the exit velo was like hundred seven miles per hour to like the track in right center field. And because, you know, um Sierra ran it down, but it was I mean, it was like a scorcher. Like he's he just needs to like slow things down. But he's you know, he's a he's a good player. Going back to McNeil though, really quickly, yeah. Honestly, uh, I
0: think maybe yeah. I think maybe I think maybe Todd being here has been a benefit to him. I I it's think Todd, honestly that apparently he's, yeah, he's been using Todd Frazier's bats since Todd got here. I mean, it's not only the home runs. He, I agree with you completely. He's hitting the ball harder, even if the quality of the, at-bat- of the at-bats themselves has not necessarily had a noticeable uptick. Uh, I mean, it was the two home runs today, but he also scorched the single through the through a shifted infield at like 100-something miles an hour. It was definitely over 100 miles per hour. Uh, so he's starting to punish baseballs that he should have been punishing. He's starting to hit balls harder again, and I think that's a really good sign for, for Pete. And if Pete and McNeil are starting to click again, just like they did last year around this same time, or maybe maybe a month shifted earlier, but it's a scary thing for teams to face. Uh, and uh, they've got, upcoming this week, they got more games against teams that do not have very good pitching staffs in the, uh the Orioles and the Blue Jays, so yeah. we'll see how it goes. Let's pivot here. And we're going to talk about our mailbag question from last week, which we got some nice responses on. Very cool. Thank you guys so much for participating. And the question again was, what do you guys think of seven-inning baseball games? And let's start out with Twitter user at Denise Mule. And Denise says, I'm not a fan of seven-inning games. I like my traditional nine-inning games. This is what baseball was and is built on. Jack, do you have any thoughts on what Denise had to say?
1: No lies detected. That's I mean, the 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 baseball game being seven innings is kinda like it just it it just doesn't I mean, what do you do with the seventh inning stretch? Is it become a fifth inning stretch? That sounds stupid. Sixth inning stretch, that what? Like you have to keep the seven what what's gonna happen when we go back to City Field and like they're playing Lazy Mary in the fifth inning. Are you gonna like is it gonna be the same? No, it's it's not. The game needs to be nine innings. What you do after the ninth inning with extras is your own thing. Uh, you know I'm not <laughs> I'm I'm not like like vehemently anti nine inning games and I'll, or anti seven inning games and I'll I'll like we'll get into that. But ultimately, like Denise kind of makes the the shortest but most important point. Like, this is just... Like, you wouldn't make the NBA, like... You wouldn't make basketball games three quarters or thirds, you know? The sport is the sport. It's not going to... In 50 years, it's not going to be, like, another hour longer.
0: It's just... Right, and honestly, I feel like the the majority of people that are kind of calling for more seven-inning games or an entire schedule of seven-inning games are the people that... Have to file game stories by 11 p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. Writers, you know, what I'm talking about journalists.
1: Um, Come on, you nerds.
0: We're <laughs> nerds. Let's move on to our, our next response that we liked. This is from Richie Hero 2.0. He says, seven is fine for slow pitch softball when you're playing doubleheaders. So if I want to see some overweight 40-year-olds, cool. I miss baseball. I, that's a great response. I mean... Beer League Baseball, Slow Pitch Softball, great. Um, we watched some uh, – recently we watched a 40-year-old overweight man play baseball, and it was, for the most part, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Richie. Again, no lies detected on this one.
1: Um, I actually disagree with Richie. I think Slow Pitch Softball games should be nine innings. They move too fast. But Really? whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I – if I'm playing a game and it ends at seven innings – uh, I feel like someone's taking my ball and throwing it away. I just, this is, I'm, I, I promise the purest takes are gonna, are gonna die down, but like, I'm, I'm a bit more on the yikes with this one, though I, I respect your opinion, Richie. All right.
0: Okay. Um, uh, next one, number three, is from uh, Mets Twitter staple at Julie Falbo. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Um, Julie says she's not really a fan. She says, Just as you're getting momentum, the game is over. It's somehow never enough time. Obviously, it exists because of necessity this season, but I'd like to never see them again going forward. And I I understand Julie's point of view on this one, too. It kind of
1: goes both ways because, you know, you like having those extra two innings when you're behind. But also, like, I mean... Have you seen mech games where they're winning after the seventh inning, like, it, or after the sixth inning, I guess? Like, it, you know, you kind of, I kind of like it when those games end earlier. It means they don't blow them. I'm just playing devil's advocate, aren't I? This is like, this is, this is cringe. This is, we should go to the next question. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like dumping all over everyone's answer. All
0: right. I know, uh, I think you should read the next one. Yeah. yeah. This
1: is from, At Gene, the lawyer, Uh, Gene says, I don't mind them. I think games have gotten too damn long with the pitching changes and length of time between each pitch. Different game than it was 30 to 40 years ago. So why not adapt to it? Uh, I will take this question head on because I think it gets at the essence of the debate of why there are or aren't, you know, seven nine inning games. Um, Basically, the sport and the pace of play have changed a lot. Uh, Mark Kerrig, uh, a former Met beat writer with uh, Newsday, who has now moved on to the the Athletic, doing bigger and better things, kind of brought this whole thing forward. Uh, he basically proposed the issue with nine-inning games now is that like they're, it's just a marathon of three true outcomes, where you know a batter comes up and he either he walks and the line keeps moving but slowly. Uh, Base to base he strikes out which takes more pitches uh, not as much action He just comes up to the plate and goes back to the dugout and the next guy in line comes up or he hits a home run And no one gets out No, you know, there's no Real change in pace there either and I think that in that sense. Yeah, the game is really different Uh, and I also think to add to that see I don't want the games to be Shorter because of that though. I feel like you can resolve that by maybe unjuicing the ball or maybe you do something to the mound again to to give you know to sort of tip the scales in favor of the pitcher like I don't know I think that
0: The miners have used the pitch clock for a couple of years now and, and I think young pitchers come up used to the pitch clock and they, they work generally work faster. I think that works
1: Yeah, That works and you know the other issue is like I mean you talk about the game as it was 30 to 40 years ago I think one thing that's kind of nice about the game being different now is that things like no hitters complete games perfect games especially are so rare and and they're i mean i don't know seven innings it's like you just get complete games again from a pitcher who's in the zone but it's not really um it's not the same right i mean i don't know
0: yeah okay and we're gonna get one last one in uh and it's from a friend of ours, and a friend of the podcast, and a friend of MetsMerize, because she's a writer at Metzmerize, our friend Lainey Ortiz, who says, "I think they serve their purpose well, but I wouldn't want to see them continue in a full-length season." Less baseball makes me sad. Lainey, same. Less baseball makes me sad as well. However, I I think I might disagree with you on this one little thing. I, if they continue doing them in double headers only. I think they serve their purpose. I think they save pitchers a little bit of wear and tear, and I think they, uh, they make the games go by a little quicker on doubleheader days when we're already getting twice as much baseball. So I really don't mind them on doubleheader days. I don't know about you, Jack, but...
1: I don't general- mind them either. I think it's important just for pitchers to be safe. Yes, yeah, um, though, I do
0: think we both agree with Laney that less baseball is a bad thing. And on that note, excuse me, Jack... On that note, let's uh, – I think it's time to remember some dudes.
1: Yes. Uh, I'll go first this time. Uh, we're talking about Jared Hughes, talking about relievers getting misused. Uh, it brings me back to kind of my first experience with the pitcher who kind of just showed up every night. He wasn't particularly good, uh, but they kept, like, using him. And I think his his ERA was more of the six. He's a 2009-2010 Jerry Manuel favorite, Fernando Nieve. Nightly oh. Nieve.
0: Nightly Nieve.
1: Did you have
0: – you? Yeah, I, what, he, um, he blew out his
1: leg on a play. I think they made
0: him a starting pitcher and he completely just wrecked his leg on a play at first base, if memory yeah. serves.
1: He was like running to first on a grounder, which wouldn't happen now because of the DH. But, uh, oh, he was batting. Yeah, oh. he was batting. It was a ball in the hole. I remember watching it uh, – it was tough. It was tough to, like, he basically, like, tripped over the bag, too. It was really bad. Um, there was that. He also, you know, he, what he also did. I think he made his Mets debut, if I'm not mistaken, the day game after the night game in which Luis Castillo dropped the ball against the Yankees, which was amazing because it was like that was such a joke of a, of a you know, event. And then the next day, it was like Andy Pettit versus like Fernando Nieves. And in his debut, he threw like six shutout innings and the Mets won. So shout out to Fernando Nieves.
0: That's a good remembering some guys call, honestly. Any any Met from that 2009 roster is excellent for this exercise. I'm going to go a little more recent. And I tried to keep it a little bit relevant because a player that the Mets, actually cut this week will forever be tied to the guy I'm remembering. Uh, The Mets DFA'd Billy Hamilton earlier this week. And you would not believe it, but the first man who ever caught Billy Hamilton stealing was a New York Met, a not very prominent New York Met, a Met who only played in 14 games between 2013 and 2014 with the Mets, a Met by the name of Juan Centeno
1: he might still be in the league.
0: He is still in the league. He's not currently at the major league level. I think he's at the alternate site with the Red Sox.
1: He was a good defensive catcher, no? He was-,
0: he was very good defensively. And Billy Hamilton came up super fast, easily the fastest guy in baseball. He had like some ridiculous amount of stolen bases in the minors. He like stole over 100 bases one year. And Centeno caught him stealing. The first guy to ever catch Billy Hamilton stealing at the major league level. So that's always just something I'll remember him for. And this week with Mets uh, cutting Billy Hamilton, uh, I was especially remembering Juan Centeno in his very, very brief two season stint with the Mets, in which he appeared in, in 14 games and went uh, nine for 40. Yeah, not, that's not actually that bad. Nine for 40. Not terrible. All right. First,
1: it's fine.
0: Yeah. And um, now that we've remembered some guys, we'll do our quick on this date in Mets history. And then we'll wrap up and get going for the week ahead as we've already been running for almost an hour. So let's do this real quick. On this day in 1983, our friend Ron Darling, as we listen to him pretty much every night calling Mets games, debuted for the Mets in 1983 with six and a third, five hit, one run innings. He walked a batter. And he struck out six. However, he got the loss in a 2-0 final. He did not get any run support. So happy anniversary, Ron Darling, on making your major league debut. And Jack, if you have one more you want to touch on.
1: Yeah, last year. Uh, this time last year, the Mets and Phillies had a three-game series. Uh, and the series started uh, with a Friday walk-off in nine innings. Uh, Nick Vincent, I believe it was Nick Vin- Yeah, it was Nick Vincent walked... Pete Alonso with the bases loaded and two out on a three-two curveball that sailed high. Pete walked over to first. Uh, the Mets ripped his shirt off, and we all got to see what Pete Alonso's chest and nipples looked like. And it,
0: it was a it was a moment we were all waiting for because Pete had been the guy that was ripping the jerseys off when the Mets had walk off wins, and he finally got his turn. And- Boy, for a walk off walk, it did not disappoint. The uh, great
1: thing about that, too, is like you had Yankee and Philly fans all over Twitter trying to dunk on us, like just met Twitter, just trying to like destroy met Twitter with the picture of Pete shirtless, like, This is your athlete, this is your king, is this your king? And I just stare, I'm like, Yes, yes,
0: absolutely,
1: he's beautiful. I don't care if he's got a dad bod, I got a dad bod too, and I look up to him. Come bear. on, he's not a like a uh, What's that dog, the really muscular dog, a Whippet, you know? Like a pit bull? I don't even know. Oh, have you ever heard the Whippet? It's like a real—I'll show you a Whippet after this. After we shoot this. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it,
0: Jack. But, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what he looks like with his shirt off. I think he still looks great, by the way. And he hits baseballs 450 feet, so who cares what he looks like without a shirt? Um, he won. hit he 53 home runs last year. I could not care less what he looks like without a shirt. And he looks great, to be honest. I think so. All right. it's great, too. Yeah. So, Jack, let's wrap things up. Uh, another good week in Mets land with four wins and some pretty exciting stuff. And today, just a great win, 14-1 to 1 against the Phillies. So, I think that's all we have for Episode 3 here of the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast for Jack Hendon. My name is Sam Lebowitz. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening.
1: Mm ¶¶